This is the Physical Activity Researcher Podcast, a podcast for researchers of sedentary behavior, physical activity, and sports. Join for a relaxed dialogue about research design, practicalities, and, well, anything related to research. Learn from your fellow researchers useful and relevant information that does not fit into formal content and limited space of scientific publications. And here is your host, researcher and entrepreneur, Ollie Tikkanen. Welcome, everyone. We have a very interesting guest for today's episode. She's working as a senior researcher at the University of Witwatersrand in South Africa. She has published over 100 peer-reviewed papers, and she has been in the consensus panel creating the first South African 24-hour movement guidelines for children. Ladies and gentlemen, I am honored to introduce our guest, Dr. Catherine Draper. Welcome, Catherine. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank thank you for taking the time for this podcast. So how, how do you divide your time at the moment between teaching, grants, writing papers, etc.? So I'm in a, a, a research position, so I only do... Uh, a very small amount of teaching. Um, I do quite a bit of um, student supervision and uh, generally the, the projects that I've done have, have involved students. So the, the work with students kind of overlaps with research time. Um, at the moment, mm-hmm. um, I spend uh, probably most of my time uh, looking for funding. <laughs> so that involves yeah. writing grants um, and I'm also involved with the, on the board of the International Society for Physical Activity and Health. So so that takes up some of my time as well. Um, And also then trying to uh, write up the results of um, the projects that we've done. I'm involved in a large randomized control trial at the moment. Um, So working Mm. with the team on that um, and kind of helping keep track of, of how that research is going and writing up some of the preliminary results is is quite a big part of what we're doing at the moment. So, yeah, so lots of lots of writing grants, trying to write lots of papers, and supervising um, students is a is a, a big part of that. And then also with the guidelines work, um, more recently that's involved some dissemination. So we've been doing um, some workshops in different parts of the country, um, and also just uh, presenting it at different meetings and that to try and get the word out, um, particularly with community-based organizations who who work with the age group that we're interested in. Mm. And, and you said that writing a lot of funding funding and grant applications. How is the situation in South Africa for research funding in um, the field? It's, it's pretty uh, dire. <laughs> so we, um, we have fairly limited um, options in terms of the research that um, we can apply for. Um, So I'm a soft-funded researcher, Mm -hmm. so we're particularly interested in grants that um, will provide salary funding. Um, And unfortunately, a number of the grants that that we are eligible for in South Africa um, don't include any salary funding, partly because they're linked to state um, entities. So so for the most part, Mm -hmm. we're applying for international funding, either from the UK, uh, from the US, and so, uh, yeah, so we kind of forced to, in many ways, kind of compete in the, the international market for research funds. It makes it quite tricky. Um, for some of the research translation work, we've I've opted more to look at more corporate social investment funding um, that's enabled us to uh, 
produce and um, disseminate the guidelines. Um, yeah, so there's d different funding sources, mm. but certainly for the really big projects, we, we look at international sources of funding. Yeah, yeah. And you said that you are doing randomized control trial. Could you tell yeah, more so about that? Yeah, so it's part project? of um, a multi-country study or big project called the Healthy Life Trajectory Initiative, uh, which is funded by the Canadian Institute for Health Research um, and in our country co-funded by our Medical Research Council. Um, and it involves Canada, South Africa, India, and China. Um, and the aim is ultimately to positively influence the health and development of young children, but actually by starting preconception. So working with young women before they've had a baby to help mm. her optimize her health um, so that she can have a healthier pregnancy and so that the child can be healthier. Um, and it includes various aspects around their physical and mental health, so physical activity and uh, sedentary behavior, sleep are, are some of the behaviors that we particularly um, target for them. Um, and the site for the South African part of that project is in Soweto, uh, which is a very large and diverse area in Johannesburg. Um, it's mainly a low-income population. Um, so we're still in the relatively early phases of the project, um, recruiting um, the initial group, um, and the aim is then to to follow up the woman through pregnancy until the child is five years old. Hmm. And and you've been doing quite a bit of uh, research within low income settings, and I think most of our listeners are probably doing research mainly on urban setting and people who who are quite well off. Uh, what kind of things you need to consider when you in rural areas or so generally in in south africa in both urban and uh, rural low-income settings poverty um is still a really um, major challenge um because of the history of our country in south africa certain mm -hmm. population groups were um heavily marginalized and so kind of placed in geographical areas where they were put at a disadvantage and unfortunately many of those disadvantages still persist um, so the rural areas are typically underserved. Um, they, you know, far away from um, services. Often, um, you know, basic amenities are often lacking. So in some of the areas we worked, um, schools don't necessarily have running water or electricity. Um, facilities are really, really basic, mm. um, and and unemployment is really high. So so parents are are in a really difficult position to. Um, to raise their children in, in urban settings in different parts of South Africa, it looks quite different, but some of those, those challenges definitely still persist. Um, and in both um, urban and rural settings, food insecurity is a really big problem, um, along with things like crime and violence, um, again, kind of unemployment and, and just a lot of the kind of socioeconomic um, challenges that are evident in those settings. And the, the challenge that that poses for us, particularly as physical activity researchers, is that health more generally and physical activity more specifically is, is often really not um, top of the priority list. Um, people are just um, trying to kind of get by and survive um, and mm -hmm. trying to find, you know, safe places to walk or nice places to walk um, um, is certainly in urban areas a real challenge. Um, women are often... Um, it's often much more difficult for them. Um, and in rural areas, we do find that, that people are quite active, often because they do need um, to walk 
quite far distances, but a lot of the research, particularly in South African rural areas, has shown that a lot of that activity mm. is at quite a low intensity. Um, and so it doesn't necessarily have the kind of optimal health benefits. So so in both these um, urban and rural low-income settings, the, the prevalence of non-communicable diseases is really high um, and very much kind of a part of normal and in inverted commas life for many people. So things like hypertension and type 2 diabetes, cardiovascular disease. So so even though this, the settings are really low-income um, NCDs is a problem. And then on top of that, um, HIV um, is, a, is a major issue in South Africa. I think we have the highest prevalence in the world um, as a country um, and kind of a comorbid mm. condition with that is tuberculosis. So so physical activity and health is, is not often kind of really high upon the agenda. I mean, obviously that then translates into kind of various policy issues and trying to get the attention of um, of policymakers and practitioners, you know, in, in the face of, kind of so many other health and social challenges and economic challenges, it's 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 quite difficult to get physical activity up there. Even though, you know, most people acknowledge its benefits, it's just the, the feasibility of kind of implementing programs, and that is is often just really challenging. Um, and so, in the, in the work that we've done with with young children. Mm. Um, particularly in the preschool age group, we find that you've then got to find what are the key issues for that age group that will kind of get people to listen and take notice. And so we found much more that cognitive development and school readiness are kind of key issues in terms of preparing children well um, for school. Um, and that still remains kind of a top priority for parents and caregivers. So a lot of what we've tried to message around, even in terms of our guidelines, is how can these mm. support and help children to to be set up best um, for school, to be on the, the best um, trajectory for their health and their education, and, and what role do movement behaviours, for example, play in supporting that. So so it's important to, to kind of find what the salient issues are and see how can physical activity and health be integrated into that, knowing that physical activity on health on its own is probably not going to um, get anyone too excited. Mm, yeah, so so very challenging environment, and and do you usually do qualitative or quantitative work? How how do you do the practicalities in this certain challenging uh, conditions? Yeah, so we do a mix of both. Um, my background is initially in psychology, um, and my, all my research, um, up to my PhD was, was qualitative. So I'm very much a social scientist at heart. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I've found that for the, the projects that we've done, really starting from a qualitative perspective and just getting a sense of what, um, what people have to say about these issues before, you know, planning interventions and developing things. Um, I think is really important. I've got much more into kind of the measurement of behaviors, um, but often the, the, the measurement without the, the social context around in which those behaviors happen, it doesn't mean as, as much. So I think, I think there's, there's huge value in both. Um, and a lot of the intervention work that we do, it's also a combination of both methods in terms of understanding, um, an intervention's kind of feasibility and how it's accepted and, you know, does it resonate with the people that you're working with? I think the qualitative methods really help us to to get mm. much greater insights into those kind of things. Um, 
yeah, so good, a good mix of both. And obviously something like cognitive development, and we really want to make sure we have uh, robust measures of, of, of those kind of outcomes. And those, those tend to be much more, um, quantitative and we've, we've managed to find some really good measures that we use. Um, but then kind of understanding how would we change those or how do we understand the environments that, that those kind of things take place in, like preschools or schools or homes. You know, the qualitative really helps to kind of then fill in the gaps about how do we actually explain our results. That's that's very interesting. Uh, let's have a short break and hear a few words from our sponsor. This podcast is sponsored by Fibian, a research device that has been shown to be valid in tracking sitting, standing, physical activity and energy expenditure. Furthermore, Fibian has been shown to be valid categorizing physical activity into light, moderate and vigorous intensity. In addition to scientific accuracy, Fibian provides automatically produced and easy-to-understand reports for research participants. Get scientific validation and learn more about Fibian at fibian.com slash research. All right, so, so you were saying that uh, you have found good measures to measure cognitive development and motor skills. What kind of measures are you using? So for the gross motor skills, which is something that we've tested in preschool children, we use the test of gross motor development. Uh, the second version, which yeah. is an American tool, so it has American norms, um, but it is widely used in research in a number of countries, so it does help make our results um, somewhat comparable. Um, and then for cognitive development, uh, we're particularly interested in executive function, and we use something called the Early Years Toolbox, which was developed by colleague Stephen Howard from Early Start at the University of Wollongong. Um, and we've worked with mm. him for a number of years and have um, translated the tool, um, which is an iPad-based assessment. So it, we feel it works really well in our settings. Um, and then we have a local, locally adapted tool that we use to assess um, school readiness. Yeah, and all of those are then done directly with the children. All right, so... You have you have launched the first guidelines for South Africa for for children for twenty four hour movement guidelines. Could you tell more about these guidelines? Okay, so as you may know, um, in Canada and Australia, their early years guidelines were updated in the last few years, and they were the first countries to do that. Um, and we were very fortunate to have Professor Tony Oakley, who led the Australian guidelines, to help us in our guideline process. Um, and yeah, so we convened a local consensus panel that included researchers, um, practitioners, ECD, or early childhood development experts, some NGO representatives, government representatives, um, mm. and worked through that process last year. Um, and uh, Tony and myself and a few of the other country um, report uh, guideline leaders were actually part of the WHO um, guidelines for the early years as well. Um, and we were fortunate enough to be able to have access to the systematic reviews that were done for the WHO guidelines and um, also considered the local evidence that we had available. Um, mm. And that first meeting took place in April last year. And then we also went through a process of stakeholder consultation. So uh, what's different in South Africa is that we're not able to rely on 
you know, an online survey um, for for getting stakeholder feedback since you know internet access is is not something that um, a large majority of South Africans have access to easily. Um, mm-hmm. So we did some focus groups as well, particularly in low income settings and. Um, through the government representative that we had on the panel, we were actually able to present it to uh, representatives of national government um, and NGOs that they work with nationally as well. Um, yeah, so got really positive feedback from that and then launched the guidelines in December last year. And then through a little bit of funding that we've had um, with the colleague, Dr. Esther van Sleis in University of Cambridge, we've been working on um, disseminating these guidelines and evaluating this de- dissemination. So this month we've been doing a series of workshops uh, mm. with representatives from community-based organizations who work with um, zero to five-year-olds. Um, so just educating them about the guidelines, um, distributing the printed resources that we have. So we have uh, the, the guidelines as a kind of a more formal text document. Um, but mm. again, because Literacy is a challenge in South Africa. We we developed an infographic um, about the guidelines, and we've had that uh, translated into the ten other official languages of South Africa. So we have mm. eleven in total. So that was a huge job, um, but that's meant that we've been able to then um, distribute this in in the, all the languages of South Africa around the country. Um, and even though the infographic is mainly pictures, um, obviously the explanations are then in the different local languages. So, yeah, so we're actually in the process today of running the last workshop in one of uh, one of the provinces. And then also working um, with some other partners we've kind of met along the journey to, to develop mm-hmm. some more kind of creative resources. So uh, with some colleagues from Stanford uh, University in California, and um, we're working with them to develop a short little video that we'd be able to distribute easily um, about the guidelines. And then mm. um, with some other colleagues in Johannesburg in South Africa to actually develop some more musical, um, what do you call them, like products, <laughs> to mm. kind of almost, they use an approach called musical storytelling. So it's just to make it fun and creative as something that we can distribute um, around South Africa um, and for us, you know, online resources are, are available to kind of a very small percentage of the population. Data is expensive, so people often don't have the ability to kind of download and print documents. Um, mm. So to have things that are kind of short and small to send around on smartphones or even um, just regular cell phones, so not not ones with internet, um, those are all kind of considerations that that we have to take into account and you know, what are we able to get out at a community level that can be distributed easily and cheaply um, and that will kind of use some of the kind of the cultural richness of music and storytelling in our country that can appeal to to more people than than just kind of a printed a printed resource. So, yeah, so it's a it's a growing <laughs> process. Um, obviously, when you launch the guidelines, it's, you know, it's a completion mm. of one process, but starting the dissemination um, of another one but it's um, it's been really really encouraging to see the res- the positive response we've had um, uh, particularly in in low income settings where levels of awareness around you know what is too much screen time or how much time mm. should um, kids be active or what's important about sleep um, 
to be able to share that kind of information because we don't just want to hand out resources. We want people to understand why the guidelines are important and how these can influence um, children at such a foundational time of um, their development. Mm-hmm. Um, and we just had a really positive response of, um, to that and people have been really supportive of um, disseminating them. So it's, it's, yeah, it's been a great opportunity to kind of see the research that we've done and the evidence that we've gathered um, actually be kind of put into action um, and to be able to, even if it's a really small difference, but kind of using that science to make a difference at a community level um, has has been really, really encouraging to see. Um, so, yeah. yeah. Yeah, sounds sounds very interesting and impressive. So you have you had many stakeholders. How how difficult, how easy it was to get different stakeholders to work work with you? So I, I guess it the putting together the consensus panel um, wasn't too difficult. I mean, there were a number of people that I knew and who kind of working in the early childhood development space in South Africa, um, but it's just to get people <laughs> in one place for two days was, was as, mm. as you can imagine, is tricky. We obviously wanted much more government involvement. Um, we were only able to get uh, one person who agreed to come, but she was incredibly um, influential and she's been unbelievably supportive. Um, so she's really helped to open a lot of doors for us and kind of give us opportunities to present. Um, and then, it, we were just also quite, a, quite strategic about who we invited to be part of the consensus panel. So certain organizations that already have a really good reputation around early childhood development, people who've been you know, working in this field for many years, um, help to kind of lend credibility to the process and credibility to the guidelines once we actually had them produced. Mm. Um, and because we had them involved when it comes to dissemination, uh, we've been able to um, kind of really get a head start in terms of tapping into the networks that they already have. So not having to kind of start with a blank piece of paper and say, right now, who do we get in touch with? We started with a massive spreadsheet of <laughs> names and contact details of of people who are already on their mailing list. And um, yeah, and, and then through these workshops that we've done, we're obviously kind of creating an even um, stronger network. So um I guess, I mean, one thing I've learned in South Africa is that most people who work with young children are really nice people. <laughs> um, <right>. So <laughs> so it's usually a really cool bunch of people to work with anyway. Um, and a lot of people know each other already, you know, if you're getting in some of the the more well-known names. And so so people are quite, have been quite happy to um, to work together. I mean, one of the things that was challenging is that um, – and I don't know if this is an issue in other countries, is that researchers are often kind of dealt with with quite a bit of skepticism by people who work um, in organizations and government because there is often this perception that um, researchers just kind of sit in their offices and do research and don't really get out into communities and don't see the realities of what's out there. Um, mm. And so it, it did took, <laughs> take quite a bit of... Um, Kind of proving that 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 you know while we were the researchers sitting in our offices that, that we had not seen everything obviously but that that we had some insights into to what the real world was like out there in terms mm. of you know young children in South Africa um, and like I said before you know with all these other challenges 
you know, talking about physical activity and screen time in settings where, you know, safety is a major concern, um, you know, trying to get people to understand why is this a priority issue? And it comes back to then saying, well, what's, what is really important to people? And everyone says, no, we want our children to go to school. We want them to do well in life. So it's then positioning the movement guidelines as to, well, how do we, how do these behaviors actually really help make that happen? Um, mm. So if you're wanting to set your child up for their best, you know, educational future, like what are the things that you need to start doing in this age group? Um, yeah, so it's it's certainly taken a lot of, you know, phone calls and meetings and Skype calls and <laughs> emails yeah. Um, to, yeah, to, to connect with um, stakeholders and ultimately, you know, work in partnership with them. Um, mm. But... You know, I think it's in, in South Africa, it's it's a really topical issue. And I think it's something that, you know, early childhood development is something that's that's really important to many people right up to our president. Um, so it's the issue itself is is quite an easy one to get people around the table. Um, but then it's it has been a case of introducing these movement behaviors as kind of a research initiative. And um, we very quickly threw out the term sedentary behavior because... No one mm. liked that. <laughs> yeah. And you realize it's a term pretty much used only by, you know, physical activity and sedentary behavior research researchers. And so it's it's been a also saying, well, what is what's a language and, and what are terms that, that people are actually going to understand? Um and and for us, because of all these different languages and because of literacy challenges, kind of having to then explain things in kind of the simplest of terms. Um mm being sensitive to different kind of cultural differences. Um, yeah, but for the, for the most part, it's, it's, um, it's been really, really positive. Yeah. And, and it sounds like quite a bit of its dissemination of the, of the results. So how, how do you see the role of researchers in general? Do, should they be doing the dissemination or should they just be doing the research and someone else doing the dissemination in a way? Yeah. And that's a, that's a really good question. Um, I mean, I guess because I'm still at that stage of my career where you're kind of doing a bit of everything <laughs> um, mm. and have a team of minions to go out and <laughs> do it yeah. for me. And you've often got kind of very little bits of funding to kind of stretch as far as possible. Um, so I think ideally you do want to have different teams that play to their different strengths. And I know certainly the people we've met around coming up with these creative resources, you know, they have ideas and marketing perspectives and all of those kind of things that, you know, we just not trained in necessarily as researchers. Mm -hmm. um, so it's really great to meet people who bring those strengths. Um, so I think there's definitely value in, you know, having people work on dissemination that that's really what they're good at. Mm -hmm. um, but f for me and I, I guess I, I just, I like working in communities and I like, you know, rolling up my sleeves and getting out there. Um, I think that when you do the dissemination and when you engage at a community level, um, you, that gives you, that like feeds back into your research. Um, so when you meet people and the kind of questions that people ask and the things that, that you talk about, hmm. um, you know, that, gives you ideas for what research you can do in the future. I think it adds like 
depth and insight into the research that you do when you've actually interfaced with like real human beings and not just kind of read reports of how things have gone or kind of seen photos or those kind of things. Yeah, I, I, I fully see that. Uh, that's that's a good point. And if we go to the actual guidelines, what were the special considerations for, for South Africa when you made these guidelines? Um, so I think, I, I mean, I mentioned the, the language issue and making sure that that was just all really clear and understandable and easy to explain. Um, mm. I guess one of the main things is that in the guidelines um, for this age group, one of the the recommendations is about children being restrained um, when they're awake for not more than an hour at a time. Um, and in African cultures, it's very common for babies to be tied to their mom's backs, um, mm. sometimes to get them to sleep, sometimes to just get them out of the way <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. when the mom <laughs> needs to do something or if she's got to walk to the bus or the taxi or whatever, you know, the child's got to, you know, go on her back. People don't have money for prams or strollers or um, whatever they call in different parts of the world. So, yeah. Um, yeah, so we had to be really um, careful about how we phrased that because we didn't want to label a particular cultural practice as something that was detrimental. Um, so, for instance, in the infographic, we actually didn't even try and kind of put a picture of that um, because it, it would just be too difficult to explain. Um mm -hmm. And the research, the small amount of research we had suggested that that wasn't the most pressing issue and that screen time in really young children was much more of an issue. Um, I mean, one of the other things around being restrained is like being in car seats. And mm. in South Africa, unfortunately, again, for resource purposes, like most people don't have car seats. So the government and NGOs do an enormous amount of work to encourage people to put their children in car seats. So using like not having your child restrained in a car seat as an example was, you know, taken out very early on. <laughs> mm. um, yeah. And I think also just in terms of the examples that we've used or how we explain it, that it's not, um, it's not meant to seem like you need a whole lot of resources to make these guidelines happen, that these are for, you know, children from all economic backgrounds, um, you know, whether you've got a lot of resources or not, um, you know, these are, these are, these are guidelines that everyone can meet. And so making it, making it as kind of broad and accessible as possible was really important so that people don't look at it and say, well, this is just for wealthy children who've got toys um, mm. or gardens or whose parents can take them to the park. It's like, these are things that, that everyone can do and they're applicable to everyone. Um, and we had um, someone in the group who had a particular interest in disabilities. Um, and so they were at various points also just saying, how do we make the, how do we phrase this in such a way that this is accessible for everyone? And how do we consider um, children with different abilities? Yeah, yeah. And how how is the situation in relation to physical activity, intensities and sedentary behavior in, in children in South Africa? So we don't have a huge amount of data um, on kind of primary and high school age children. So the research that, that we've done has been particularly on preschool age children, so from mm. three to five. Um, we actually find that children are very active <laughs> um, yeah. across different income settings, doing you know in excess of about 400 minutes of activity a day when we're recommending they do 180. 
Um, and the, the majority of them, you know, certainly meeting the kind of uh, total physical activity guidelines and a, quite a high percentage of them meeting the, the guideline for 60 minutes of energetic play, our mm. MVPA. So, so physical activity for us is, is actually less of a concern. Obviously, in our settings, it means that kids are often playing outside in the street, which is not terribly safe. Um, so we know that often the activity happens in a way that potentially puts children at risk of other things. Um, yeah. We, and the, 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 from a sedentary behavior perspective, we, we certainly from the, the dissemination workshops, from the stakeholder input and all of that, we found that, that screen time from a very young age is very much a part of children's lives. And when we say, you know, children under two not to have any screen time, then usually we get a few gasps and kind of big eyes looking back at us thinking, well, that's just totally not reasonable. Mm -hmm. um, and kind of reports of children spending quite a few hours um, a day, certainly in urban areas where, for the most part, even in really low income settings, people have a TV. Um, but as smartphones and tablets and technologies becoming more accessible, um, mm. those those become a really um, accessible thing for young children as well. Yeah. So physical activity levels were good. A little bit too much sedentary behavior. Behavior. How 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 about the sleep uh, sleeping time? So sleep. Um, what we've found the the research that we've done with um, children in particularly low income settings in urban areas um, is that they're not getting enough sleep, um, and partly or mostly because their bedtimes are just all over the place. So there yeah. seems to be very um, little bedtime routine, um, and at the preschool age, children are spending, you know, good hour, hour and a half, two hours a day napping at preschool, which helps yeah. get them the recommended amount. But obviously, as they transition into formal schooling, they're not necessarily going to have that nap. Mm. Um, so the, the bedtime routine is a big issue. But in these contexts, a lot of the time, families stay in the same room, uh, often sharing beds. And, the, you know, the TV's often there. Ad adults want to watch TV late into the night. Um, and the children just sit there and and watch as well and go to bed late so so a lot of what we've spoken about in terms of this the sleep guideline is just to start instilling that that bedtime routine um as as early as possible um often the morning the morning kind of wake up time is quite regular because that's when people need to get to work or to school and that's that seems relatively fixed but it's the it's the night time that seems to be all over the place so that's certainly something we've tried to address in intervention work yeah yeah so it it seems in overall you have been doing really really interesting project and disseminating the results quite a bit i think we are we are closing the time time limit i would like to thank you for taking the time for the podcast and maybe we can do another another recording on a better time sounds good thanks very much for the opportunity this podcast is sponsored by fibian get scientific validation and learn more about fibian at fibian.com research the physical activity researcher podcast has created an activity tracker purchase guide for researchers get your free copy from the link in the podcast description 
Thank you for listening to the Physical Activity Researcher Podcast.